coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and a happy fall weekend to you. The first in the month of November. Thought I'd start with uh, the Stop Cop City movement. We haven't talked about Stop Cop City in quite a while. There is a pretty expansive piece that Joseph Papp with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution wrote. Reminder now, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is a Cox Media-owned enterprise. And uh, Cox Media, its parent company, is a donor for the Atlanta Police Foundation. Obviously, the Atlanta Police Foundation very much wanting the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility built. I just mentioned that, but I, I I actually want to tip my cap to Joseph because I I thought this this piece was uh, uh, pretty extensive. It spoke to how the Stop Cop City movement organizers were able to gather the one hundred sixteen thousand signatures that they did. I'll share this in today's show notes at ronshuetl.com. The headline: How Atlanta Training Center opponents collected tens of thousands of signatures, and they talked about setting up in businesses and parking lots, uh, working comedy shows and breweries. Uh, there was an analysis done of, um, the 25,000 or so petition papers by the Atlanta journal constitution, Joseph Papp writes that showed that there are about 111,000 signatures total. Although the AJC has not verified if each is a registered Atlanta voter. Uh, there was also another consulting firm that was brought in that has ties to the city that believes here's what Joseph Papp is reporting. That officials with the firm said that after taking a random sample across the some 25,000 pages of names and reviewing each individually to see if they could identify them as an Atlanta voter, they predict there are just over 49,000 potential verifiable signature. That would leave organizers about 9,000 signatures short if the analysis of the sample holds true. Of course, there's also the question of when the signatures were collected and Again, PAP and the graphics team uh, at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution actually showed where I think all but 8,300, 8,354 signatures uh, were collected within the allotted time originally. Of course, they were granted a little extra time by a judge, and then that got appealed. And in the appeal, a judge decided, no, the original timeline is the only one that would work. And now they're kind of stuck in a legal limbo while we're waiting on court decisions to determine how many of these signatures are going to be allowed to be verified. And even if there are enough signatures, as Joseph Pat reports in this piece, even if city officials determine there are sufficient valid signatures, the issue of whether a referendum is valid in this case will likely still be decided by the courts. Attorneys working for the city have repeatedly argued in court filings that state law does not allow a referendum to overturn the signed lease between the city and its police foundation. Kate Shapiro, one of the field organizers, said they expect more referendums in the future and are working on ways to document what they did to help out future organizers that want to try to get a referendum. She said they're trying to drag this out. What they are miscalculating is the more that they deflect and stonewall and duck and deceive their constituents, we're building an electoral block that can eventually unseat them. I should also add that Riley Bunch had been contributing to this article as well. Sorry, Riley. Uh, Let me pivot from electoral threats to (laughs) uh, an upcoming election, actually, that 
is seeing some low turnout already. Early voting, uh, I believe, has come to a close, and we have election date next Tuesday for some municipal races. Um, Adrienne Murchison with the AJC reporting that early voting in local elections all over Metro Atlanta ending today, and it looks like only 1% of Fulton County residents had voted, um, and 2% in DeKalb County. There are some uh, pretty uh, slim numbers in Cobb as well. Let's see. We've got uh, races in Duluth uh, with just 275 of the 32,000 in that population voting early as of Wednesday. Um, Murchison says City Clerk Teresa Lynn said there are nearly 21,000 registered voters and uh, she expects less than 2,000 traditionally vote in municipal elections. That's sad. Um, in Cobb County, just under 3,800 voters had cast ballots uh, as of Wednesday. Uh, more than 2,000 of those voters were in Smyrna. Clayton County had 3,000 ballots cast in person as of Thursday. Uh, again, DeKalb, I think, was like 2%. Uh, approaching 14,000 early voters. Uh, Fulton, 16,000 residents had voted ahead of Tuesday's election. Uh, Milton and Palmetto, the only two cities in Fulton managing their own elections. Milton City Manager Steve Krokoff said the same number of residents that vote early is expected in person on Tuesday. The final early voting number could reach 1,600 or more, he says. Uh, Palmetto, 5,000 residents had close to 300 early voters. About 600 more voters could cast their ballot on Tuesday due to the mayor's race um, in that city where uh, Mayor Jake Clark body. Uh, is leaving office. Uh, In Atlanta, the school board race is actually a pretty big one. And when you consider that the school board budget dwarfs the city's, but like more than twice what the city of Atlanta's budget is, we're talking nearly $1.7 billion. Uh, Voting uh, in the school board race is sort of an important thing. Uh, District 1, Katie Howard is running unopposed. District 3, Michelle Olympiadis has one opponent by the name of Ken Zeff. And uh, Erica Mitchell, the incumbent for District 5, is uh, facing opposition from Raynard Johnson. By the way, I have uh, a link from VoteAtlanta.org, VoteATL.org, that uh, you can learn. There's Q&As from all of these candidates. Um, Seat 7 at large, Tamara Jones holds that, and she is being opposed, and I've seen a lot of signs for this guy, uh, Alfred Shivy Brooks. Uh, as well as William Sarden. Nikoya F. Long Lewis is the sole opponent for the incumbent Jessica Johnson in the uh, ninth, uh, ninth seat, the at-large seat that serves all of Fulton County. Again, uh, voteatl.org did a Q&A that um, I think all, I'll do all of these, but I believe most, if not all, of the candidates answered questions. So if you want to do a little bit of a deep dive on that, I'll share that link for you as well uh, at ronshowatl.com. And I know what some of you are thinking, oh, boring. I know it is. It's pretty boring. But for folks in Fulton County who were shocked when they opened their property tax uh, assessments uh, here in uh, recent months, yeah, that's, yeah, think about it. Again, the city's budget's under $800 million. The Atlanta Public Schools is one point, uh, approaching $1.7 billion. That's like $34,000 spent per year per student. So I'm not suggesting that that the APS take a haircut or anything like that. Obviously, uh, maintaining facilities in a major city uh, property is going to be more expensive. 
you're going to have employment costs that are going to be heightened because of cost of living, et cetera, and so on. I'm just saying these are impactful votes. Uh, also, I mean, we need only look as far as Cobb County to see how uh, electoral laziness nets you uh, representation that may not actually suit your ideology. Cobb County is, I've said this for months now, Cobb County is a blue county. There's no arguing that anymore. Hillary Clinton carried it in 2016, Stacey Abrams in 2018, Joe Biden in 2020, Stacey Abrams again in 2022. Cobb County is a blue county. And yet, if Republicans had their way, it would still be a majority-led Republican county. They've tried to redraw the county commission map so that it reflects an even (laughs) representation at the county commission. And the votes don't bear that out, right? And the school board is a majority Republican school board. I know it may not be sexy if you are, you know have political aspirations to run for school board, but if you've got to start somewhere, school board, especially if you're a parent, is not a bad place to start. And Cobb County voters need to do a better job of seeing to it that their ideology is represented at the county commission level and at the school board level as well. It, well, they're in the midst of banning books and firing teachers for reading books, innocuous Everybody get along, let's uh, respect diversity kind of books to kids. While we're on the subject of Cobb County, (laughs) there is a collective sigh of relief, well, maybe bated breath in some respects for some Cobb County voters who got uh, lumped in with Marjorie Taylor Greene's mostly rural, mostly MAGA district, uh, where it it appears that with new maps being drawn uh, towards the end of this month, we would assume that some of these Cobb County voters who feel like they do not align with Marjorie Taylor Greene's insanity uh, or or ideology uh, might find themselves now part of a new district that would include them and portions of Douglas County and create a new majority minority district. Maya Prabhu at the AJC reporting on that today. She writes, residents of Southwest Cobb, which include the mostly black cities of Austell and Powder Spring, said they were shocked in 2021 to learn that the Republican-led General Assembly had drawn them into the 14th Congressional District, which stretches north through western Georgia to the Tennessee border. Can I just tell you, I've said this many times, I have close friends, some former family members from my uh, ex-husband's side, anyway, I've, who live in the Cedartown, Rockmart area, and you couldn't, you couldn't pick a more disparate population of folks in the state of Georgia than by lumping in <clears throat> Rockmart and Cedartown with Austell and Powder Springs. Just totally, totally disparate types of folks. Anyway, Meyer writes, but things could change after a federal judge ruled that Georgia's congressional and legislative maps violated the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which prohibits racial discrimination in elections. The legislature has until December 8th to produce the new political map. Specifically, U.S. District Judge Steve Jones told lawmakers to create a fifth majority black congressional district located in West Metro Atlanta. And the makeup of the 14th district was one he said should be addressed. In my piece, I absolutely love this quote from Deborah Duglin, an African-American resident in Powder Springs, works in real estate, said she was blindsided when she was drawn into MTG's district. Mm-hmm. She said, I believe that gerrymandering has got us stuck with somebody who absolutely, in no shape or form, represents who I am, what we think or what we would want, especially with the actions that we have seen her do. I'm totally embarrassed that she is my representative. Now, listen, I, I've seen some 
options for redrawn maps. In fact, Maya uh, includes one in her article here that shows that Marjorie's uh, chances of staying in office if she decides to stay uh, in Congress with this new map, it, it only gets stronger. She's only going to be in a redder district. But that's the trade-off. You actually might be surprised to learn that, uh, well, Maya speaks to this piece, that Marjorie didn't like the new district lines uh, because they actually did add Democrats to her district. And she was, I don't think she was scared she was going to lose the race, but obviously it, it didn't it didn't bolster her support. Maya writes, Green may welcome the changes to her district. In 2021, when the draft maps were released, she bashed the new lines as a fool's errand that was led by power-obsessed state legislators. Ooh. Instead of adding Democrats to her district, Green said lawmakers, quote, should have fortified GOP districts for the long term instead. We only had five competitive congressional districts in 2022. This would jump to at least 10 of 14. That's a win for the voters. Legislators will have to earn their vote. Go figure. More on show after this on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show, and happy weekend to you. First weekend in the month of November. Man, the year is almost over. <laughs> As you get older, by the way, time just sort of kind of gets... Well, I, I mean, I don't mean like my time gets shorter. I'm saying... Okay, so that's kind of morbid. No, I'm just saying like the concept of time. Like an hour seemed like a long time when you were a little kid, and your mom said you got to lay down for an hour. Oh, man, a whole hour? And now, oh, we would kill for an hour nap in the middle of the day. But I'm just saying, like, an hour doesn't seem like as much time the more time you experience. Does that make sense? So these years literally just start flying by. We were just celebrating the new year, right? I was just having my birthday in February. We were just getting into the start of the baseball season and the, oh, the Braves. Anyway, I digress. It's the first weekend of November, uh, and I thought I would start a new little segment we call Meme Busters. <laughs> Forgive me. I have mentioned this before, and I actually think I've flexed my muscle a little bit when it comes to the diversity of folks that I know and am friends with, uh, especially in the wake of the Israeli-Hamas battle, the war, since October 7th. I have had several Jewish American guests on my show. And I had somebody point out to me, by the way, you notice like all of the Jewish people you have on the show, they are sympathetic or empathetic to the folks in Gaza. Yeah, that's kind of my point. But I do have a lot of Jewish friends. In fact, uh, one, of my, uh, one of my favorite neighbors is a Jewish American, and he has been very vocal in his support for Israel on social media. That's cool. I tend to not engage. I don't really feel like, I don't know, I've kind of outgrown the whole like fighting on social media thing. Well, at least on Facebook. I mean, Twitter X, it's a different thing because most of those are right-wing trolls now. Um, anyway, um, a meme that I came across a few days ago from another associate, someone who I used to work in the same broadcast industry with. He's a, a Jewish American guy and uh, he posted this meme and here's how the meme goes. You don't care about the tens of thousands of Palestinians during the Syrian civil war. You don't care about Palestinians in Jordan where their citizenship is being revoked and they face discrimination in all systems. You don't care about Palestinian refugees suffering in Lebanon. You don't care about Palestinians on the border with Egypt, who are begging for shelter and Egypt refuses to open the border. You don't even care when Palestinians are protesting and suffering under Hamas and the corruption of Palestinian authorities. You only seem to care when it relates to Israel. The meme continues, I have news for you. You are not pro-Palestinian. You are anti-Israeli. Now, I will at least give credit to one thing. I've seen that meme. In fact, I, the, the person who shared it 
didn't share the meme that I've seen more frequently, where they don't just cap off the meme by saying, you're not pro-Palestinian, you're anti-Semitic. Yeah, I've seen that a lot. And I take huge, I take such umbrage to that. Because all of those things that were mentioned in the meme are still wrongs. Palestinians have been wronged in Syria. They've been wronged, the refugees, wronged in Lebanon. It's, I think it's so puzzling, such a head-scratcher to me, but I mean, I'm a little naive to the Middle East, I guess. And we all are, to some extent, to varying degrees, we're all naive about the Middle East. I'm seriously kind of have the, the puppy head tilt about Egypt keeping their their border closed. And obviously, it would be a preferable turnout if Palestinians were able to vote again and could vote Hamas out. That being said, I, I don't think, well, a, obviously, I don't think that not being able to have the bandwidth to keep up with all of that makes us anti-Israeli or anti-Semitic, for those who want to take that meme even further. It, it just means we have a limited bandwidth. We only know about so much that's going on in the plight of the Palestinian across the country and around the world, right? Um, but I, I could turn that on anyone who wants to share that and list a bunch of ways that the LGBTQ plus have been wronged across the globe. And folks who think that they are pro-gay obviously haven't cared much about the plight of the LGBTQ plus in Russia or in many Muslim countries, but they're pro-gay, right? See what I'm saying? I can sit here and talk about the plight of the black and brown population in other parts of the world that folks aren't all that vocally supportive to defend. But it doesn't make them anti-black, right? Or how about all of the atrocities that women across the world have faced? Women are subjugated and, and subservient in Saudi Arabia, and yet that doesn't make someone in the United States who claims to be an advocate for female rights anti-woman. It just means we only have so much of a limited bandwidth. Listen, in general, I try not to get offended by this, um, mostly because feel like I want to understand psychologically what it's like to be a member of a marginalized community that was nearly wiped off the face of the earth to the utter dismissiveness of the global community 80 some years ago and now has this tenuous sense of support in yet another skirmish in such a hostile area of the world, it's important to feel like the global community has your back. We can sit and argue about whether or not it's right or wrong that uh, there was a global effort to carve out, whatever. Regardless of that, I understand the psychology of the Jewish person who is overtly, I would say, very prominently pro-Israeli and wondering if the global community still has their back. Obviously, I think it's a no-brainer that 99.8% of the world could be deemed anti-Hamas. We can be anti-Hamas and still be empathetic to the Palestinian. And we can also want there to be, this is me. I, I, 
a two-state solution. That's all I would I would enjoy a two-state solution. I, I don't think bombing each other, and I don't think terrorizing one another, and I'm not sitting here equating what Israel, but I, I would say, I, I just don't think, like, I don't see how th- what's happening now solves anything. I don't think it brings the people closer together. Bombing people into into bits, running them off when they themselves are afraid that they'll have nothing to come back to or that what they thought they would come back to has been taken from them and they've got to, again, look somewhere else and then they become refugees. And well, we know how the world feels about refugees right now. And by the way, with climate change, that's only going to get worse. I get the palpable fear of the Jewish global citizen. I really do. But I can't stress this enough. There are plenty within Israel who are not behind Netanyahu and his aggressive tactics in the 20-some years that he's been in power. It's okay that there are those throughout the rest of the world who feel the same as those in Israel. It doesn't make us anti-Israeli. I'm sorry, I just reject this all-or-nothing mentality. And I'll say the same to those on the extreme left who keep talking about how this is a genocide and Biden's a genocide president. Come on. Both sides looking for binary responses from a lot of us globally are just going to be disappointed in us, I guess. Take the Ron Show wherever you go. Download the America One Radio app to your smartphone and listen on the go. Or in traffic wishing you were on the go. The Ron Show on America One Radio. So the entire point of dog whistles, I believe it's so that we're not supposed to hear the dog whistles. But I have to tell you, those of us on the left, a lot of us anyway, we've gotten to be really good at spotting Maybe not hearing, but, well, no hearing them too, but definitely spotting dog whistles. There's a lot of dog whistle terminology that sits mostly on the right side of the aisle that sort of engenders a response from the conservative base based on the various phobias or isms that exist on the right side of the ledger. For example, I saw this piece... uh, few days ago. Yeah, it was uh, October 29th. What day was the 29th? See, I'm telling you, the year is flying by fast. The week flew by fast. This was on Sunday that I saw this piece out of the Associated Press. From Johns Creek, Georgia, as she accepted an endorsement from a group called Veterans for Trump, Stacey Skinner spoke about how she got into politics because Democrats, quote, were starting to infiltrate on the local level. Former President Donald Trump and other national Republicans often warn of takeovers by China or people crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. Skinner is running for re-election to the city council of Johns Creek, an Atlanta suburb of about 85,000. Remember, this is an Associated Press article, so this is covering an audience beyond just us. Yet the 44-year-old Skinner does not openly promote her Trump association, telling inquisitive voters in this Republican-leaning enclave only that she is, quote, conservative. Skinner's opponent, Devin Dabney, meanwhile, faces questions about being a Democrat. Going into the 2024 presidential election, the dynamics in Johns Creek and other nearby Atlanta suburbs reflect how partisan and cultural divisions that intensified since Trump's 2016 run have trickled down to local campaigns. Some activists and voters now view these nominally nonpartisan contests as critical fronts in shaping the nation's identity. People have a right to know who they're voting for, says Betsy Kramer, a Republican Party volunteer who is backing Skinner in Johns Creek. I'm not voting for a Democrat, Kramer said. I'm concerned that if Democrats start taking over North Fulton, 
the whole area is going to change dramatically. That's not the worst thing Kramer said, though. I don't want our city to become a hellhole. I don't want to become Atlanta, she said. She associated, according to the article, Georgia's capital city with crime and riffraff. Similar to how Trump once disparaged Atlanta as crime-infested and falling apart. Kramer also said of some of Johns Creek's non-white residents, some of them are my very good friends. But she also later on argued that putting more Democrats in local office guarantees housing policy that would, quote, change the demographics, saying, I want anybody that can come afford it to live in our city. We live in a high-rent district, and I want to keep it that way. I'm not trying to keep anybody out. Now, Ms. Kramer, while a local Republican, is not a spokesperson for Stacey Skinner, who is running as the incumbent for city council, but does what you hear her saying sound all that unusual from a Southern Republican? Okay. So as I spoke to you about dog whistles... I figured let's have the candidate on. And no, I don't mean Miss Skinner. Miss Skinner's probably, and she's welcome to join the show anytime she likes, but I've got questions for Miss Skinner. Anyway, her opponent is Devin Dabney running for City Council Post 2 in Johns Creek. Devin, how are you? I'm doing great, Ron. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm sure when you were approached by uh, an Associated Press reporter about this story, did you have any idea the sort of tableau that was going to be painted once this all came out? Yeah, I didn't. But you never know how these things are going to go. And, you know, there are so many changes in the world now. I, I just I feel like the the partisanship is held and you just you, you can't predict. You can't predict, you know, what's going to be said, how it's going to be perceived or re- received, you know. Right. It's just interesting that this story dropped, and then uh, just today we see in uh, local news sources that there are uh, there's a Republican effort in the General Assembly now to create a northeastern Gwinnett County city that would also speak a lot to what Ms. Kramer spoke about, wanting to keep that area what she called high rent, trying to keep affordable living uh, apartment communities from encroaching into cities like this. I, I can be honest with you, I grew up in uh, suburban Columbia County, just outside Augusta, Georgia, and there were always these arguments about these, you know, developments near gated communities and what it would do to property values and this, that, and the other. And all I can think is like, when you go to the drive through at Starbucks, where do you think that barista is going to live? And how far do they have to drive on 725 or 10 or $12 an hour to get to that Starbucks or to that nearby grocery store or to the Ace Hardware, or this, that, and the other. Where, where are these people supposed to come from if they don't have options nearby? Uh, your, exactly. thought, your thoughts on this, this whole notion of high rent versus affordable living uh, and, and how welcome Johns Creek should be to folks no matter their income? Well, you know, I have a background in, in public policy, particularly, specifically economic development. Mm-hmm. And so I'm never going to begrudge people for trying to frame or develop a city uh, based on the desires of the folks who live there. Sure. But my issue is always going to be who are the folks living in the city who are making these decisions? Because it's never just the constituents. It's never the neighbors. Mm-hmm. It's always a small group of five to ten folks 
who, and, and if we're being perfectly honest, they don't even always live in the city. Mm. It's, you know, it's about 40 people, particularly here in North Fulton, who make all of the decisions, you know? And so there's this thing that they have about people who can't afford, according to their standards, to live in houses coming in here. Mm -hmm. They don't want, they don't want them to come by way of public transportation, but it's exactly as you say, who is going to provide the service work? Who's going to do it? Mm -hmm. You don't want them bust in. You don't want them to come in on trains. You don't want them to live in apartments because you say that they bring crime. But here we are in the middle of an opioid epidemic. Right. When we have people who are seeking drugs there. So we have a rash of burglaries. This has nothing to do with income. This is a, that's, that's a totally different issue that's negatively impacting the city and the surrounding uh, North Metro area. But, you know, it's, you know, we use tools to accomplish the things we want, right? Sometimes it's race, sometimes it's gender. Um, and we, we can say all we want, but we don't want apartment living here. But what we're really saying is that we want to keep the demographic a certain way. Mm -hmm. We want to have the numbers look a certain way. And the easiest way to justify that desire is to say that we're basing it on living, you know, not having apartments. You're going to have more, you're going to have younger folks. You're going to have the people of diverse backgrounds who are living in apartments, but not for nothing. A lot of the people, I, I moved out of an apartment complex not too long ago. Right. And a lot of the folks who lived there, lawyers, doctors, mm -hmm. tech folks, making a hundred plus thousand dollars a year. So, you know, it's a bogus argument and they know it is as well. But they just want it to be a certain way. And, um, you know, no one up here is, is looking for density because it, it breeds traffic. It breeds all kinds of issues that, that aren't good for anybody. I was just going to say, un until MARTA comes creeping into Johns Creek, uh, density is probably not uh, a tangible option right now anyway. It's not. And then we don't even have enough business development stuff going on. To, to justify the concerns. It's not like we're teaming with new businesses and, and you know, folks in and out of open-air malls and all this kind of stuff. We don't have any of that going on. Right. It's, it's not an issue. It's just, like I said, it's just a tool for fear and to control for certain outcomes. Well, I kind of take graphics. I sort of take uh, exception to the terminology that uh, Ms. Kramer uses because I, I, I feel like she may not be saying any of this stuff if she weren't supporting a candidate who's running against an African-American female. Am I just, am I, I was gonna say, am I just no. triggered by this or is this legit? It's 100% what this is. And what you have to understand is I've been here since 2012. All right. I mean, it's I've not been, like you just moved in from like old fourth ward Atlanta. Exactly. And then on top of that, you know, I, I'm known for being a, bridge builder. I'm a Rotarian. I, you know, I sit on various boards with the city. I, co-founded uh, an ambassador board with the, our chief of police nice. here. You know, it's what I'm saying you put is... put in the work. Exactly. And before I ever ran for anything, they, they had no fear of me. Mm -hmm. my, my, they, didn't even know how, they didn't even know how to frame uh, an attack against me at first. You know, Stacy, we, we spoke on the phone. I called her as a courtesy because we were friendly. Sure. And she said, you know, you're known as a conservative woman for all intents and purposes. Mm -hmm. Nobody, nobody thought of me as being anything radical, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but they needed, they needed something. They needed a frame of attack. 
So she immediately went full Trumper. You know, she got an endorsement from the Trump folks. Okay. And then she had surrogates out there telling people I was going to bring affordable housing. That's that's just way the way they decided to go with it. It's a black woman. We're gonna we're gonna scare people on. It's such you know, a trope. Yeah. It's, I mean, come on. You're, you're you're Dabney. You're not Florida Evans for crying out loud. <laughs> you know, but people do what they're gonna do. You know, you and when you don't do. What's right if what's right doesn't work? Mm-hmm. You'll do what's wrong if you know that it will be effective. And, and that's what it is, you know? I feel it would be unfair to have you on the show and not talk about your policy position. So tell me, what is your vision for Johns Creek if you were to uh, climb this uphill climb and land a seat on city council? Honestly, um, my major concerns, given the state of affairs in the world, you know, Tip O'Neill said it, all politics is local and it's true. See, look at she, she's even she's even quoting a Republican, y'all. Oh my goodness! Devin Dabney is <laughs> quoting a Republican. Clearly, oh, I'm sorry. Oh my goodness! No, no, it's it's, but <laughs> but I mean it, it's real. If you think about it, we've got the wars. We have all of this uncertainty that breeds uncertainty in you know financial sectors. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the stuff with the interest rates going on and people being priced out of their homes well, tell and communities me. around us. Yeah, I'm a residential realtor. You can preach. I'm just saying, yeah. you, you know what I'm saying. And, and, and so I have, I have a lot of concerns for my neighbors, you know, even I'm not, I'm not the girl who resents you for your wealth or your lack thereof. I, you know, I just, whether it's, you know, a nest egg for retirement or your net worth, it's all the same to me. Cause we're all one health crisis away, mm-hmm. one interest rate raise away from being priced out. Yeah. And so I, I think it's very important that we keep things um, settled on that front. And then again, I just cannot speak enough about what's going on with the opioid crisis here in Johns Creek. Mm. You know, they like to keep it quiet because they want to have this look of prestige and togetherness and, you know, upstanding, uh, wallpapering over the mold on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. But it's bad. And people are dropping like flies. I'm concerned. So it's, it's bad. It's not, it's not being discussed. You know, a few months ago, there's a pharmacy that sits on the line of Forsyth County and the city of Johns Creek that was robbed of its one ton safe that houses all the fentanyl based op- opioid based uh, from it, mm. pharmaceutical drugs. Mm. And so they didn't put it in the paper. It didn't get discussed, but it's a grave issue. And so law enforcement, they need more resources to combat this. And then some of our nonprofits who are working with them, one John's Creek, Pathways to Life, they need resources too. So that's a big focus for me. And then the last one though, just a sense of belonging for everyone. I really want to see us turn the page on this foolishness, you know, that Kramer and the like are putting forward. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Republicans are actually around here. They're actually embarrassed of that. And so much so, and they like to keep this quiet, but when I first announced my candidacy, the GOP, Fulton County Republicans, invited me to one of their breakfasts to share my platform. I mean, this is a nonpartisan election, so why wouldn't they? You would think. <laughs> you would think. It, it started out really nice at first. I thought we might be able to do this. We might be able to turn the page on some of this old stuff, but people go back to what they know. you know. And, and now that she's, I guess, a little concerned, you know, because the numbers right now with early voting, they're pretty close oh, good. between us. And so she's going full on fear mode. 
So uh, election is Tuesday. Uh, I'm sure you, everybody that comes to your face says, oh, I'm going to vote for you. But uh, yeah, right. what do the numbers look like? Give me, give me the honest. Give me the honest truth here. What's going to happen? So, I mean, I'm doing everything to get my vote out. I don't take anything for granted. And so, you know, we've got our phone banking going. We've got our texting going and still knocking on some doors. But honestly, um, I looked at the numbers today and there's a, from what I saw, like 70 vote difference. We don't even, there's not an expectation that 2,000 people will vote. Right now, the numbers are sitting at 1,200, 1,207. Last time I looked. So and it's all about who can get that vote out. Uh, the remainder of today, obviously, and then uh, on Tuesday election. And by the way, the forecast for Tuesday, I'm looking at it right now. It's uh, going to be a high of 78, uh, sunny, no mention of rain, low of 50. So there's no excuse. Beautiful day. Beautiful day. <laughs> We're just uh, working for the best outcome, working every day for this thing. All right. I'm going to send folks to your website, uh, Devin Dabney, running for city council post two, and that would be at votedabney.com. Listen, uh, I appreciate you giving me the time to talk about your race today. I know it's not often that you hear from folks who might be on a national platform to give you the opportunity, but uh, I wanted to give some attention to a a little bit of a local race that I think has some national, obviously, uh, fingerprints on it already. So, Devin Dabney, thank you for joining The Ron Show today. Ron, I'm so grateful. Thank you for having me. Final segment of The Ron Show for the weekend edition and for the entire week, which means I got a weekend coming too. Uh, I mean, with lots of softball and house showings and got a friend staying for the weekend, couch surfing. So there's that. Uh, I mentioned in the last segment before getting to speak with Devin Dabney, who's running for a city council seat in Johns Creek, that there is a movement to create another city in Gwinnett County in the Northeast corner. And the push of this is to what they say would be better control over development. And I spoke a little bit uh, about that with uh, with Devin because there seems to be a lot of that sentiment in a lot of rural and, I say rural, and suburban and rural communities where there's fear over apartment developments because it's going to bring crime. And uh, what did, what did uh, Ms. Kramer say? Riff raff, like Atlanta. Wink, wink. I mean, the dog whistle, it's just very clear. Um, Ali Afar in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporting on uh, this push by GOP legislators to propose this new Gwinnett County city. Uh, Georgia House Majority Leader Chuck Efestration from Decula plans to file legislation that would create the county's second most populous city. Tentatively called Mill Creek, he said the new city would, quote, allow residents there to have a better control over development. He said... There's been constant feedback that I've received from residents that Gwinnett County government has not been responsive to the concerns expressed about development proposals in this part of the county. This proposal would allow city council members to represent districts with less than 10,000 residents and allow for far greater responsiveness to the concerns raised and the needs of the community. He mentioned he continues to take input on the proposed name, which could change, blah, 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 blah. The uh, city would include Hamilton Mill neighborhood, where many are fighting proposed mixed-use development approved by the county staff that plans for, ew, 700 apartments. Ew. What will they do to my property values? Nimby, nimby. Now, right now, when I just kind of do a flyover on the map here, uh, I don't really see a whole lot of business development in this area. 
But I do have to wonder where the folks who work at Rick's Automotive are going to live. Or there's that uh, Exxon just off the interstate. It looks like there's an Aldi's and a Moe's Southwest Grill and a Buffalo's just inside the city limits there. There's also the movie theater, the Regal at Hamilton Mill, the Coles. I, I, I don't know what those places pay for a living, but I imagine there have to be affordable homes within a short drive of those places. And if we're going to have this new town of Mill Creek without any affordable housing encroaching on its residents... It seems as if the employees of Coles and Moe's, Southwest Grill, et cetera, and so on, are going to have to live somewhere else, but be there on time to make sure the folks in this new Mill Creek development won't have anything to complain about, like long lines to check out buying their appliances or kitchen gadgets or betting at Coles or getting their burrito bowl at Moe's. I'm just saying it's disappointing in 2023 to hear the the, the subtle, not-so-subtle dog whistles, I should say, of folks like Betsy Kramer of Johns Creek, who fears Johns Creek becoming anything like Atlanta with its, air quote, crime and, air quote, riffraff. And naturally, you can't even begin to have the discussion about mass transit because <laughs> you have to make it more expensive and more difficult for those who can't afford to live in places like the proposed Mill Creek community in Northeast Gwinnett, you have to make it so that they have to have a vehicle and spend gas money and drive a certain distance to come make sure that they can make you that burrito bowl at Moe's Southwest Grill. Because you can't dare think about there being affordable apartment living in Mill Creek or even discuss. It's a non-starter with the Betsy Kramers of Gwinnett County. Having Marta oh, encroach on their lovely little piece of Georgia. Y'all, it's the damnedest thing. It's 2023 and we're, we're still having mid-20th century conversations. And I know I know, folks think that they're real subtle with the terminology, but I hear it. Yeah, I'm, I'm tuned into these dog whistles. Sorry, not sorry. You know, I lived in Myrtle Beach for 11 years, right? And I remember the thing that always kind of like baffled me was how it was pretty expensive to live at or near Myrtle Beach. And there were always these fights against having affordable housing, uh, apartment communities there as well, because, oh, it's so close to my gated community. And I, I, I came here to retire and just live a lavish lifestyle, but I, d I don't want to see the riffraff, but the same riffraff needs to come work at these resorts and hotels and, and, and clean and do landscaping and work in the restaurants and the kitchens, et cetera, and so on. And so they literally had an outlying county, Williamsburg County, had its own transportation system. They were busing in, quote unquote, the help to come work in the resort town that, quote, the help couldn't afford otherwise to live in or near to work those jobs. But my property values. Oh. I say this all the time. It's not cheap being poor. Let me rephrase that, actually. It's expensive being poor in these United States. And the gated community type, 
They don't care. Just come cut my grass. Just come grab my trash and recycling. Have my food prepared in a timely manner, please. And when you're done, don't think you're renting an apartment near where I live. No, I need you out of sight, out of mind, and preferably far enough away that you don't affect my property taxes. My property taxes. I got to tell the Betsy Kramers of Johns Creek that those of us in Atlanta who live in mixed communities and neighborhoods, we actually get along quite fine. Crime? Sure. Homelessness? Of course. Major cities are going to have that because we are magnets for folks leaving communities like yours. Folks that you don't want to deal with that we have to, except your politicians cut the funding at the state and federal level to ensure that we can. Damned if we do, damned if we don't. That's it for the Ron Show for the week. Back on Monday, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, americawonradio.com. Show notes at ronshowatl.com. Have a great weekend.